Western films and your typical action films share so many similarities that when you attempt to define their themes, plots, and overall characteristics, the two genres are almost indistinguishable from one another. Almost. I'm Rick. And I'm Rob. And we're the host of a brand new show called The Good, The Bad, and The Podcast. Join us where we watch a different film each episode and share with you our unique brand of audio commentary. We'll take a deep dive into each picture and discuss the technical elements of the film, as well as sharing our personal stories and anecdotes along the way. And while you can enjoy this podcast on its own, it's best viewed along with the film we're commenting on. So please, put on your headphones, sit back in your favorite chair, and watch a classic movie with us. Hello, welcome everyone. So today, what we're going to be watching is the 1985 classic film with Clint Eastwood, written and directed, starring Pale Rider. So if you have it on streaming or DVD like I brought, Cue up your movie now. Here we go. Uh, Warner Brothers Pictures. This was, I believe... Um, the old logo, right? Yes, and Clint Eastwood's 14th movie for Warner Brothers. Yeah, so you kind of have a long collaboration. Now, right off the gate here, what I like about this is you see some greens, you see some snow. It's not the stereotypical um, dust ball, dirty, sandy western the atmosphere has a little more color a little more vibrance to it beautiful wide open shots this film was shot in anamorphic widescreen yep and a lot of the exterior shots we're seeing here are from the sawtooth mountain range in idaho oh i didn't know that yes filmed in idaho yes right even though the fictional town is uh la hood california so it takes place in california exterior shots in idaho during the gold rush that's right. It, the time is non-specific, other than it is post-Civil War, so sometime after 1865. Sure. So we have a beautiful shot here of the. Now this is. Um, These are some of La Hood's men La who Hood's are coming men. to shake down and drive out the uh, tin pans, as they're referred to. Yes. The gold prospectors. Beautiful shot. Like I wonder if this set is still sitting here. You know, and. Um, if I remember correctly, the spot where he goes into the bank, that's in Columbia, Idaho, I think, which mm -hmm. was actually a town. So some of the stuff was filmed exactly on location, but then some of the stuff would, of course, be set pieces. Nice. And this looks very much like you could envision the West. You have the canvas tents. You have very minimal kind of wood shacks that these uh, prospectors would have built themselves. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like a Victorian-era antique mall. Right. It has kind of a gritty realism as opposed to a, an elaborate set piece. As opposed to sort of the, the shabby chic, you know, like um, modern uh, vintage antique stuff you see. It is all very authentic and weather-worn. Yes. 16 by 9 anamorphic widescreen is typically you're used for uh, widescreen shots and landscape shots like this as well with these beautiful... You can see kind of, I don't know if you want to call that tundra on the rolling hills, but they're kind of pale in color and then you have the green and, and fall is apparently just coming up because we see some light yellows and oranges in the trees i think you would you could uh, classify that as tundra especially in the winter the sure. terrain is very sparse there's a classic uh shot that we see in many westerns a close-up of the horse chest as they're splashing across the creek 
Certainly. Um, now they're on full gallop here. We have a sense of urgency, don't we? We do. We do. And I think with, with filmmaking and storytelling, you want to add a ticking clock element for suspense, to build suspense in your stories. And this sort of juxtaposition between the the tin panners sort of blissfully unaware of the danger that's coming. That's right. Coupled with the urgency, the urgent riders, definitely adds that ticking clock. When are they going to arrive? Counting down the moments. Now here we have the, the, the young girl in the film. Played by Sydney Penny. Beautiful young lady. And there we have uh, Carrie Snodgrass, who is doing laundry. She was a longtime veteran actor. She was also in uh, some Bronson films. Yes, uh, not my favorite actress. Uh, her, her, you she's know, very wooden. She's very wooden. And I think when I watched this film for the first time, I realized how beautiful it looks, but how crappy some of the, the delivery is. Right, and if we focus on crappy, a lot of it unintentionally comes from her. Because it, I think yeah. a lot of La Hood's henchmen and guys like uh, Michael Moriarty, he plays Hull. Yeah. And a lot of those guys, I think, do just fine. They really do, and uh, you know she's certainly not like a Nicole Kidman or, or somebody you can't no. give a line reading to. You know you can say, hey, you know, why don't you just uh, can you give me that line again? And this time, you know, so here the here we go here. Um, this is the first confrontation of the film, and this movie starts with a bang right out of the gate, right? Yep, and that's exactly what you need in Act One. You need something that gets the audience's attention. They're coming downhill, which I really liked that, how it was filmed at the base of the hill. So you see him coming, cresting and coming down the top and shacks are being pulled down with lassos, revolvers are out. So they are being very forceful with the tin pans. And really the goal here of La Hood's men is to scare these villagers, these these, these panners away from the settlement because La Hood uh, improperly believes that he has claimed this canyon, which he doesn't. Right. They are standing in the way of his progress, not their own. Correct. Correct. So these are just uh, a group of 10 or 15, 25 people who are... A small community. Yeah, trying to carve out you know, living. And yeah. they do. You know, Later on, there is a very infamous scene where... Um, Someone does strike it rich, and we'll get, we'll get to that at some point. Yes. So, on our debut episode here on The Good, The Bad, and The Podcast, I'm not going to go over our overview again, but it's very fitting that we selected a Western. And in my opinion, if we're going to select a Western, I think the best place to start is Clint Eastwood. So we're going to talk a little bit, and you admitted yourself that you weren't mm-hmm. the biggest fan or you didn't necessarily view a lot of his Western films. Sure. Um, some of the features on this DVD, which are sparse, but it did have some notes on Eastwood being Eastwood. Um, he believed in being prepared. He believed in doing his homework, and he didn't like to give actors or actresses a lot of excessive coaching. So he thought that okay. they should do their homework and bring what they can bring to the table. And he not a big fan of shooting a lot of takes because his rationale is if you're not prepared, there's no emphasis or nothing to gain by reshooting stuff over and over and over. So he likes to work quickly and he likes to give the cast their freedom. And why did I pick Pale Rider? Well, he became well-known 1964, 5 and 6 in the Sergio Leone Man With No Name trilogy, a theme that definitely resurfaced again in 1973 when he plays a nameless drifter who's mentioned at the end. And he also plays someone in this movie who's only referred to as preacher which is of course an occupation not a name so that genealogy uh, has roughly a 20-year film career 
for Eastwood. So back to your your point, let's talk a little bit about um, that information that you dropped was very interesting about he doesn't you see he's he's a a director's an acting director a director who's an actor, right? So yes. so I believe he's directing people the way he probably wants to be directed. And you know, that is just a sign of a good boss, right? Because yes. I feel like in my business, the way I instruct people, uh, I, I teach people the way that I'd want to be taught. And I don't hassle them a lot. I expect you to, to pull your pants up high and get the job done, get in there and get out. And if I can't trust you for that, then you're not going to be involved in my production, right? So I feel like that's that's pretty much what, what Eastwood's approach is here. Ooh, here we have some, some brutal... Yes. Scenes here. Now we have the aftermath here of La Hoy's raid. La Hood's. La Hoy, what is it? Uh, La Hood. La Hood. Coy is his first name, so it's Coy La Hood. So it's, it's a little. doesn't always come off the tongue the smoothest, but. So now here we kind of have the traumatic right. incident. Uh, Megan, her dog was shot by these marauders. Yes. yes. And really the thing that, in my opinion, sets Pale Rider apart from others mm-hmm. is that this movie has a huge biblical reference it comes from the book of revelation where it says behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and here we have megan wheeler who just has her dead dog and she says god if you don't help us we're all gonna die please just one miracle the movie's title is taken from the book of revelations like rob said chapter 6 verse 8 and i look and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him very dramatic very and dramatic the reading of the biblical passage described this character describing this characters is neatly choreographed to correspond with the sudden appearance of the preacher uh, who arrived as a result of a prayer from megan in which she quoted psalm 23 um yeah very cool and this is not the first biblical reference in this movie we can get to some of those other things as they happen later but this is very much kind of a movie about resurrection the the tin panners have to pull themselves up after this horrific incident and then who is this preacher what is his backstory who was he before we don't really get that answer we kind of have to draw our own conclusions now look at this look at the it kind of shows that the mountains are are steamy and and they're rolling and she's asking for a, a miracle and when he first comes on screen i love the way he comes on screen Yes, definitely. Um, some beautiful shots here. Yep, aerial shots kind of twisting and turning through the snowy mountain ranges. And there he is. After her prayer was received, here comes Preacher, just seemingly out of the mist, right? That's right, and it's no coincidence that he is on an Appaloosa horse, which are typically pale spotted horses. So he's the he's riding, he, he himself is not pale, but the horse he's riding is pale yes or maybe his face is pale i don't know well the hood mentions that earlier later in the movie too he's like when i heard a preacher i thought a scrawny easterner with bad lungs and a linen handkerchief sure so there's a little bit of 19th century stereotyping there but here he comes here comes the good galloping preacher as he comes into frame beautiful shot here so also if you're if you're a fan of the red dead redemption series i think a lot of this uh a lot of the film, a lot of the game uh, background and, and, and landscape was based on these old Western movies. And it's, I certainly get a huge Red Dead Redemption 2 feel while I'm watching this film, which is nice because if you're a huge Western fan like, 
like I am, you can sit down and play the game and just sort of uh, ride your horse all around. And it's very, very, very accurate to the time. It's and I like cool. that his character, too, has a, a Western hat that kind of resembles a top hat. It's not caved in. It's not round. It's not dirty. It's not frumpy. It's got those big crisp corners and he's a tall man he's a lean man and he has a big duster a big trench coat on it all kind of fits the presentation of that there's a force coming to La Hood, california this was the first big laugh of the film right here too when uh this guy, this guy gives gives kind of a comical don't you think that's kind of here. dumb what happened last yeah. time <laughs> a little funny michael moriarty the actor we just saw riding on top of the stagecoach there was playing playing uh hull barrett is his character's name in this film yes it is you might recognize michael moriarty from a horror film called the stuff which was around this time about killer foods and um he was also in another horror film called troll which is uh playing the role of harry potter senior oh now off off to the corner there i don't know if you could see it or not but the biggest building in the town says C.K. LaHood and Sons Mining Company. Okay, sure. So this town is owned by LaHood. Yes, it is. We yeah. see we have a dentist, a drug prescription place, a hardware store, and that's where he's going now to get supplies for the mining camp after it's been destroyed. Just a really bare bones sound. Everything is very centrally located. Yep, it's and... a main street, and you have stuff on both sides, and looks to be a block, maybe two. It's not vast. No, yeah, and it's pretty practical for for shooting this and i wonder if if they they had to have built this just for for the set it certainly wasn't filmed in in the in the in the backstage lots of uh, studio city or warner brothers studios or anything like that this was built yep for this particular show hopefully it's still standing there it'd be amazing to go and visit this wouldn't it yes it would now there are some noteworthy extras in here the gentleman here that runs the hardware store in the apron he would later be in the 1994 on deadly ground with steven seagal and he looks basically the same same hairstyle same mustache and out in the street there we saw a group of lahood's men the guy eating the apple i believe is dweezil zappa he was also in the no running kidding. man with arnold schwarzenegger and the pudgy guy in the blue shirt was also in the 1982 john carpenter's the thing he's the guy that the chest cavity opens up on the operating table and severs his hands off oh, no kidding yeah so as they come back here to discourage hull from ever coming back i'm sure you'll pick up on that rick hmm. interesting very yes. interesting so here we have hull um and the setup here is hull is coming into this hardware store to pick up some supplies and the shopkeep is saying look you, you know you guys are you guys owe me some money that's right you owe me more than a few ounces Spider Conway, that son of a bitch. I've got him down for eighty-five thirty-three. Correct. So, so yeah, really showing up already here. Um, but they're impoverished. They're, they're down in, on their luck. They're they're not having much success yet in this film, and you know, surprisingly, that doesn't the pursuit of money and that sort of thing doesn't play a huge role in this film. Like, no, it doesn't. They don't. They don't really focus on it. it happens, but they don't. They don't spend a lot of time with it. You know, no. so they spend more time with. Uh, They're just trying nature. to survive. Simply, that's really all it is. It is yep. a survival movie. It's it's just about their struggle and really nothing else. It's it's a very straightforward. It is, and some critics. I read some newspaper articles of the period. They kind of compared this to High Plains Drifter, and they kind of said it was simple storytelling. And what one person views as negative, I view as a positive. 
This movie is two hours long, and it doesn't take two hours to figure out the plot or who's who or what's what. It's a straightforward story, and by God, you enjoy it. Or you should. Correct. Because I certainly do. And here, here he comes out with some canvas and burlap. See the guy there in the blue shirt? That's the guy from The Thing. You recognize his face? Oh, I sure do. Yeah, And there's Mr. Zappa there just about ready to toss his apple core. And in just a few minutes, we're going to have the first appearance of the preacher who comes to Hull Barrett's rescue. And here these guys are warning him to stay out of town, which... um, It implies that he was beat up last time he came to town. Right. Because they said a kick in the head, maybe it'll jar your memory, maybe it'll come back. And the reason why they're keeping him out of town is to, you know, uh, just... Stop their progress. And, yeah, yeah, to intimidate them from, from doing anything and say, well, we can't make progress. We might as well just pack up and leave. Now they're trying to encourage him to fight by saying that uh, Megan would be nice to get intimate with. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. He says, I didn't come to fight when well, you shouldn't have come at all. And I thought that's sort of that's where this movie was going to go. I, I had assumed that they might uh, kidnap the girl on my first viewing. I was like, they're probably going to kidnap her. You know, that, that line right there might be a good setup set for later on. You, you, they make you think that. But, you know, they plant that seed of, of uh, danger. Like, can this happen? You know, and it's a very real element to this film. Um, and I'm Christopher sure. Penn does attempt to assault Megan he, he later does. in the mining camp. There's a great scene of that as well. Now, Barrett here is getting pummeled by axe handles, and he's trying to crawl away, and they're pulling him out from under the wagon to continue the beating. Now, Rob and I watch a lot of movies together on our other show, and we do notice a lot of tropes and you know, I really enjoy Rob's um, insight into the police uniforms and the hats and things. So I was thinking that um, we'll probably learn a lot about these style of hats and the style of building. And we're going to see a lot of the same similarities. It'll be interesting to learn this sort of thing along the way. Like, what is the difference between a Preacher's hat here and this other guy's hat here with a rolled corner? I'm sure they all have different names. Well, I'm sure they do. And... Some of the hats definitely look like they're a cheap working man hat, where mm-hmm. the hat that Eastwood has looks like it would be more of a, a gambler, a poker player hat, something that costs more money. Now, he's disarming these guys, and he is administering justice with a nice piece of hickory, and he'll actually say that later after he knocks the last guy down. And the action sequences here are a little clunky. Like Some of the editing is not as modern. This is definitely a throwback to some of the more 50s westerns. Um, not even 60. Some of the some of the Leone westerns, the action was a bit more polished than this. This is this is a little it's a little clunky. Well, you know, I don't think in most cases this stuff was done by by stuntmen. So I think they had to probably be careful because even though they use movie props, anytime you're doing fight choreography, you don't want the staff or the crew to get beat up on. Sure. So there's a little bit of an editing process there, but there is. And uh, more modern westerns, you certainly would see a little bit more. Uh, polished action sequence so here we have um they're uh, all knocked senseless after Hull barrett is very impressed here by the preacher yes coming in and saving the day you know basically you know i think that the the preacher is he's like he's a superhero in this one right he's just he he's spider-man he's batman he's coming to the aid of these poor people who need his help he's he's helping those who can't help themselves so in that sense he is a true hero and if you notice too he never initiates the conflict but he will step in to stop it certainly he will so he He did not start the fight with those guys they were already mid-beating of hall and he stepped in to stop it yep yep he does so and now hall is 
taking his supplies, whatever meager supplies he was able to borrow, and he's going to head back up into the mountains there and inviting the preacher to come along, can't offer much, but two hots and a cod or three hots and a cod. And yep, that's exactly what he says. I only have a two-room cabin, but you're welcome to one of them. Definitely. Now, that's a nice shot there, too. We have a lone pine. We have a few birch trees, but it definitely shows how sparse the landscape is, with the exception of the vast mountain range. Brutal and unforgiving, right? It would have been. That would have been a a very hard time. A lot of people died from, you know, dysentery, the flu. You're more likely to get injured as you were a cowboy or did a lot of these work jobs. I don't know what it would be, but I would bet the average life expectancy back then, if you reached 50 or, or 60, you were probably doing well. And that was really probably based on misfortune and, and not so much on, you know. You Recklessness. Know, or, sure. Or, yeah. Sure. You know, these guys just, they had to cut all this stuff down by hand and strip all these trees and, and build everything. And yeah. just a brutal lifestyle. And I can't even imagine, like, how, certainly how spoiled we are and and how huge our problems seem. The amenities and comforts that we have didn't always exist. We take it for granted, especially in this one. Now, the suspension of disbelief is a little bit greater when you watch Once Upon a Time in the West because it is certainly, uh, Leone's films are certainly much more romantic and they don't show the like hardworking real side of life that this does. Yes, and I don't want to get too off track here, but I just finished uh, Once Upon a Time in the West and my feeling on that film is that it is too long and part of that is the way that leone films <laughs> yeah he, he likes the subtleties he yeah. likes the build-up um but that was a, a tough film for me to sit through and, and watch it it was paced so slow it didn't even necessarily keep my attention very well and i know there's two different cuts of that film but uh, i prefer the man with no name trilogy i think they're paced better the music is better the cast of characters is better there's more going on the plot isn't convoluted it doesn't take two hours and 20 minutes out of a two hour and 40 minute film to get to the point so even though i recognize it for its subject matter and cultural significance overall i don't like that as much as the other films certainly so here we have uh what's your name sarah yes she's she's reading again behold the pale horse the psalm um uh, book of revelations chapter 6 verse 8 she's reading that and here he comes right into frame out of the window that's right certainly and if you look look inside look at these are darkly lit interior shots i mean the women just look tired everybody looks tired i mean i think it paints a pretty accurate picture of what life presumably was like back then not a lot of creature comforts very few i, I mean i think maybe sugar and maybe some sweet fruit and, and now and then maybe some some grain alcohol and i think you were you were pretty happy right i think so now this is the only kind of link that we see to the preacher's past as we see his back it is there are six bullet wounds in the shape of a circle which Sorry, folks, those are all in the C zone. That guy would not have survived that shot group. Correct, correct. Yeah, those are exit wounds. That's right. So he was. So this goes a long way um, to solidify the theory that Preacher is a ghost in this film and his character in High Plains Drifter, potentially the same character. We don't know. That's right. And I was trying to establish a little bit of a genealogy here, and that's one of the things that uh, we learn in high plains drifter at the end when he points to the tombstone is that eastwood's character was the ghost of a high moral tone sheriff who was bull whipped to death in the middle of the streets in an audio interview clint eastwood said that his character preacher is an out and out ghost 
However, whereas Eastwood's 1973 western High Plains Drifter resolves its storyline by means of a series of unfolding flashback narratives, although ambiguity still remains, Pale Rider does not include any such obvious clues to the nature and past of the preacher other than six bullet wound scars on his back and his relationship with Stockburn, who claims he once knew a man like the preacher. But of so, course that man is dead. That is from uh, Wikipedia, I believe, or something so sure some similar reliable something source. like that yeah just uh, quoting here now sarah wheeler here is getting upset with hull for bringing a stranger into the household and she very much uh, disapproves of her daughter wanting to stay in the town after the hood's men tried to scatter him so that's where their the argument there is coming from is she doesn't approve and of course they don't know that he's a preacher now they all feel a little embarrassed when he comes out with the collar on. So we have this moment of, uh, yeah, certainly um, get this guy out of here, and then he comes on with this very, very shocking moment here. And I think, if, I think, you really have to put yourself in the shoes of these people and, and the importance that uh, preachers and, and holy men, religious men of that time, the significance that they played in their lives. A much larger role than in the 2021 society. Yes. So. And he says, "I hope I'm not the cause." For all this excitement, nothing like a shot of whiskey to whet a man's appetite. He's he's yeah, and he he's certainly not any uh he's not he's not afraid to drink. None of these guys were back then, even preachers, they just were not afraid to it just wasn't a thing, it didn't matter. See, she says, I didn't realize I want to apologize. Yeah. And here we have Sarah taking an immediate interest in him, and of course she um does fall in love with him as a very misguided um teenager. Teenage love for him and he, it's it's a really cool little B story that Eastwood worked in here with Sarah's fascination with the preacher and potentially taking him on as a husband. And he says, you know, one day you're going to find a better man than me. And and he he knows that this is not the right thing to do, especially being with a young girl, but also the kind of man he is. I mean, politically, That's, it's yeah. one of the best well written segments in the film. It's great because you, yes. think, you think it's going to go a completely different way, and then you 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 contrast that, compare and contrast to Chris Penn's character, who is just a scumbag and just I'm just going to take it anyway. I don't care about your feelings, and he just he really wants to protect not only her virtue but um, but her cell, but uh, you her know, future, her future from being involved with the man like him at all in any way, shape, or form. Because he knows there would be no future in it. He would Zero. not sign up to that. Now here, here we have the first um, showing of the LaHood mining operation where they use uh, water and a series of old equipment to blast the rock away. Well, the it's tin painters have cool. to do it all by hand. Correct. And uh, later on, Chris Penn does explain how they do this, and it's all about like the downward water pressure and how the, the Starts water, in a bigger pipe and goes sure. to a smaller pipe. And, and that it, just... Yep, blasts it all away. And I just assumed that... Um, I assumed this was some sort of way to... Because they're making gravel, essentially, here, right? This is like They're a, blasting away the gravel and trying yeah. to find any gold that's in there. And then they, they pan with, like, conveyors or something like that. Is that what they're using? Actually, sure. Something yep. like that. Yeah, so it's a much, much quicker process. They can do tons of work a day where these miners, of course, they can't compete with that. This guy's looking, his buddy here looks like a young, uh, kind of like Randy Quaid a little bit. Randy Quaid could have played that guy's role, the guy who got shot in the face. Or uh, the other guy there. Oh, oh yeah, the guy from the... That guy there who got shot in the... looks pretty much like Randy Quaid. Yeah, he, he got his face kind of beat up a little bit there. Now, this is a very early on-screen role for Christopher Penn, who got his start in 1983, Rumblefish. So this movie's from 1985. 
So I'm a big Chris Penn fan. Of course, uh, all of our film nerds out there probably recognize him as best as a nice guy, Eddie, from uh, Reservoir Dogs. And he's sadly uh, passed away, Chris Penn. I first remember him from the martial arts film The Best of the Best with Eric Roberts and yeah. Philip Ree about the USA karate team versus the Korean. <clears throat> That's true. And I think I'm, oh, here we have a first appearance by Richard Keel. Yes, who, who famously played Jaws in two James Bond films. Yeah, and, he, of course, Happy Gilmore later in his career. He's great. Yes, he is. And he do, later on in this picture, he, he does make a, an attempt at a moral turn. He does. Um, he does. He, but uh, you know, he's he is very, um, very. I think it implies uh, that he's kind of dim-witted in this movie. Yeah, he's very underutilized in this too. Yes. Um, not very effective. He's supposed to be very imposing. Supposed to be this this force to be reckoned with, and and it just doesn't work against the preacher. Preacher to make short work of him. Yes, he's, he does. He he doesn't seem. He's very nonplussed at his attempt to <laughs> engage with him. He's no. Yeah. No. You're. It's okay, dude. You know, it's like you say, he, that, that's what makes him more like a superhero. He's more like Batman. Right? What, I, what I really like about Eastwood's portrayal in this and many of his movies is he's very minimalist. I read a review where you don't see the um, the bulging veins and the blood vestal style of uh, Sylvester Stallone. He's very laid back. He's very subtle. And you certainly don't see him worried in this film when he tries to help crack the boulder or stand up to a hulking brute of a man like Richard Keel. And I think that this film, um, and at least Eastwood's maybe um, attitude towards that would be his inspiration by Shane from the movie Shane, which I think this is a, a direct, either remake of, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as say remake, but maybe inspired heavily by. I think so. Shane, High Noon, early, early Western classics. Certainly. So now here he's telling Hull, well, put me to work he goes no i can't do that maybe something spiritual and the preacher is willing to roll up his sleeves and and get down on terms with the rest of the tin panners so he kind of endears himself in their hearts that way and of course they all like seeing him stand up to the hulk of a guy whose name is club his name is club his name is club and you know it's funny because his name is also a, a very uh very descriptive name in the james bond film he was jaws yes jaws and club that's right. So, and they refer to him as Frankenstein's fat foot in yeah, Happy yeah, Gilmore. Frank, Frankenstein's fat foot. That's right. So, of course, the, the these towns like this, and you always see a billow, a thin trail of smoke from the roof of these so cool. shacks, and and the campfires, so you know that they're making stew or or coffee or frying some bacon, and these are people that just lived a simple, hard life. Great line here. This rock and me have an agreement. I'm going to do it in, and or it's, it's going to do me in. And he goes, I'd, in. "I'd hate to lay odds, and who's going to win?" Yeah, <laughs> preacher not afraid to roll his sleeves up here, and we have a really great scene that I love. This scene of of uh, Hull and and preacher trading blows on the trading rock, blows right? on this rock, trying to trying to look for some gold. That's right. And we're not going to spoil it for you, but it's going to get there in a in a few minutes. Richard Keel. Uh, does with one hit on this rock what the two of them could not do. Yes, it's it's a very dramatic scene. Here we have Sarah looking on from with her dog. They're um, all in, in disbelief, but they, they quickly get approved because most preachers back then would have been clerical, holy men. They would have just stayed inside, more or less. Sure. This guy is willing to get out and, and work and get his hands dirty. I, th- I believe this actually reminds me of, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, this does remind me of a Game of Thrones 
episode in which the hound leaves his violent life behind and joins a religious like a church and help tries to help start over and sort of make amends for his violent past by helping a town of people a little group of people um build their church and cut wood and all this and of course the the hound in game of thrones is much more gruff and uh, savage than preacher but uh, very reminiscent of this maybe even inspired by pale rider yeah and anyone who's been around since 1955 like mr eastwood there's so many roles that he's played any of them could be a direct or indirect influence on many of the things that have followed definitely um like I, sorry go ahead oh, i would say he's he's a wonderful director i love i love his films uh, first film I ever saw of his was Play Misty for Me, which was his directorial debut, Play Misty for Me. And I saw it when I was probably 11 or 12, and it really had a huge impact on me. Yeah, he does play a lot of stuff that's kind of, you know, romance-themed or, or mm-hmm. a little uh, unusual subject matter, maybe. Relatable, right? Yeah. So here we have a preacher's first, well, his actually second encounter. With La Hood's men. La Hood's men. And Hall says, well, the one on the left, that's... Coy's hood, uh, excuse me, Coy's boy, but the other one, I ain't never seen him before. So they're all going to be hopefully intimidated. And look at uh, Sydney Penny there. Her face kind of portrayed the stunned disbelief, fear. Who is this big man, right? Right, and she... Watch when he gets off. I'm pretty sure he's taller than the horse. He might be. So I have a little bit of information about that. Um... Now, here the threats are subtle. Don't take it personal when I tell you to get the hell out of La Hood County. And he goes, well, there's a lot of sinners here. Wouldn't want me to finish before I leave <laughs> yeah. my work. So right off the bat, Eastwood is establishing that he is not going to be intimidated or told what to do. So the first horse assigned to Richard Heel collapsed the first time he climbed aboard. <laughs> and uh, he was then assigned a stronger horse. Yeah, I would think you would almost have to potentially give him a draft horse as opposed to a quarter horse. Yeah, yeah. So here, Richard Keel is, is is unbuttoning his his shirt cuffs there, and he's gonna he's gonna attempt to intimidate the preacher, which falls flat because uh, you know maybe because he's already dead, he's a ghost. You know, you can't hurt him. He doesn't really have a single blow. He never gets injured in this movie. No, and right off the bat, we know that he knows how to fight when he whooped all those guys. So now, yep, he's prepared already. Look at this. Boom! He splits the rock in third or, or half. And he does it with one hit. And everyone is just, they can't believe it. Your work done now, preacher? Part of it, least ways. Yeah. It's so again, he's telling <laughs> him he's not leaving, right? He seems very unmoved. Like I say, very nonplussed by, by this show of force here. Now, here he comes. He's going to, of course, hurt the preacher. Boink! Sledge to the face. And then, boom! Right to the groin. So a big man is still vulnerable, and nothing like a... This is definitely pre-Triple H, so Eastwood gets the nod for using the uh, sledgehammer. After a club gets hit between the legs, Preacher helps him back to his horse. You do not see this, but uh, Keel, due to his back problems, had to use a step that was on the side of the horse to get on the saddle. If you look, you can see him take a step onto the platform before getting onto the horse. So he steps up onto the platform. There he goes. There's there the step. Goes. And he gets onto it, and uh, very much like Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride, where he physically could not get on a horse, so they had to use a body double, and of course that that wasn't available in this film, so yeah. they just gave him a fucking bigger horse. Now here we have a little bit of foreshadowing of what's to come. Coy, uh, Coy's 
son Josh there has his hand on his revolver. So he's not really pleased that his attempt to intimidate the preacher didn't work, but they're leaving nevertheless. Yeah, building tension between the two here. Now you're adding an element again of the ticking clock. Are these guys going to come back? What's going on? You're building tension with these relationships and these interactions. Now the preacher here takes another swipe at the rock, and this time he busts it up further. Watch this. Boom. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so showing that uh, preacher is just as strong as club. And now look at how impressed they all are. Yeah. They're all going to come together, and we presume they finish off this boulder once and for all. Yeah, he's sort of inspiring these people, right? Like To work together, unity. Yeah unity he's exactly what these these guys need here they just, they just need this uplifting moment to sort of uh get their stuff together and it did say earlier that hull barrett said well i thought about drilling and blasting the son of a gun but that would dry up our creek and right. that would be the end of it right and later in the movie that's exactly what they do they blast the creek and dry it up on the tin panners right they do they and, do yeah and another attempt to drive them out but it doesn't actually work it does backfire on them in a very significant way and we'll get to that later on yes what I like about these guys is you see a lot of tans, gray, brown. I mean, everything is kind of drab, right? Nothing real extravagant. Except back then, um, uh, maybe, well, I, let me see. maybe 100 years before this. This takes place in the late 1800s. I'm sure 100 years before this. Pink was not actually a gendered color then. So you'd see the color pink in a lot of to show that you were affluent and you were very fashionable right so so george washington often wore a lot of pink in his clothes just to show that he had money that he, he was, had status he was status so here comes coy LaHood back from a business venture in sacramento you can tell he's a, a wealthy man he's got a tailored suit he's got a vest he's got a gold pocket chain on his watch and uh, he's not too very impressed when they tell him that they couldn't drive the preachers off Excuse me, couldn't drive the tin pans off, and now there's a preacher in town. Right, correct. So, And, of course, they're nervous to tell him about it, too. They're, they're sidestepping the issue. Well, well, we went down 20 feet. Uh, still doing pretty good. But then he gets right to the point. Uh-huh, and what about Carbon Canyon? Yeah, yes. So not going not gonna to work out there for them too well. Um, this film was remade as Missionary Man in 2007, Starring Dolph Lundgren. Really? Yeah. It's a lone. Uh, the Missionary Man is about a lone biker who rides into a town in the aftermath of the death of his friend, and he discovers that his friend didn't die but was murdered by a local businessman who would let nothing stand in the way of his plans to build a state-of-the-art casino on Native American reservation land. So, uh, on a mission of justice, Dolph Lundgren confronts and defeats the bad guy. And his men in a tour de force showdown where the one rider vanquishes the many. That is interesting. It sounds awful. I'm sure it is. Um, no offense, Mr. Lundgren. I love Dolph Lundgren, but we will not be watching that on this show. Maybe we'll watch no. it on our other show. I think so. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe not on this one. With the emphasis being on genre classics, I can't really think of anything where... Dolph is the leading man in any classics, although he's been in some very noteworthy movies over the years. Yeah, certainly. But um, so now LaHood is telling, "Bring this preacher to me." He See, he wants. You know what he's going to do? Yes, he's going to try to bribe him, which is another biblical theme. The devil tries to bribe oh, Jesus, okay. and LaHood tries to bribe the preacher. So okay. another 
Another Bible reference here on old storytelling themes. Interesting. Very interesting. Yep. And we'll get to that when he gets in LaHood's office there. He's, he goes, well, first thing we do is build him a new church. Then he'd start thinking about clothes. Well, you get him tailor-made. Then you start thinking about the collection plates. Well, man, in LaHood County, he'd be very wealthy indeed. Well, that's why it won't work. You can't serve God and mammon both, mammon being money. Well, LaHood, he's not a dumb man. He no. He understands the consequences of his actions, right? So he's going to suggest that they, they bring him in at, in a certain way, and he says, no, don't do it that way because that's going to have this effect and this effect. He, he's, he's very aware of the causation. Yes, he says, right. don't make him a... A martyr. Sure. Yeah. He did. The yeah. last thing they want is is, is to make him a martyr. So, and uh, something tells me that like no matter what approach they took to the preacher, nothing would have nothing would have been effective. But um, and he's also trying to use his status too to bribe the preacher. He's saying, hey, if I can pay this guy, if I can get him on the take, so to speak, problem solved. Right. Then the tin panners will ultimately give up this struggle against us. Right. Right. And here we see Megan. Uh, she's combing her hair in the mirror. She's asking about what age some other family members were were married. So she's definitely starting to swoon for the Clint Eastwood character. Yes, by saying, do preachers get married and all of that. So, But you also see the B story here that sets up between Hull and uh, the woman. Well, I can't remember her name. What's her name? Sarah. The This woman here, the mother? Sarah, yes. Sarah, are they both named Sarah? No. It, uh, Sarah and... Uh, Megan is the Megan. daughter. Yes. I keep... You know, I, this like uh, th- forgive me. It's my second time watching this film, and I didn't. Um, no, it's okay. Absorb <laughs> it. You know, it, it's from the '80s, and yes. I wish I would have, you know, watched it as a kid. But in any case, um, it does set up the B story as well between Hull and uh, Sarah about their romance, and he does present himself, puts himself out there later, and says, "Is there any chance we can be together?" And then you and you're thinking she's going to turn him down. She's going to say no, right? But she says, yes, of course, you know, of course there is, and uh, makes Hull a very happy man at that point. And then a funnier bit of dialogue, which we missed earlier, as Hull is introducing basically who he is and who he lived with, he says, well, how about when we get hitched? You do the hitching. And Clint Eastwood goes, if you're waiting for a woman to make up her mind, you may be in for a long wait. <laughs> <laughs> so he has a very a dry uh, sense of humor, a very dry delivery, but also very matter-of-fact he is. He, you know what, in, 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 in a weird way, he's the comic relief in this movie in some way. I mean, you have some of these, like, town drunk kind of characters as well that are kind of give you a chuckle, but but it's his quick wit and his sharp wit that's biting since he's really funny. It's he very points funny. out the irony. He yes. does. And, uh, yeah. Um, so now he's very proud because he just found a significant gold nugget. And they're going to go into town to try to clear some of his debt to the hardware store. It's pretty cool, right? He has this, this tiny little nugget, which could be worth, you know, $150 back then. And I, I would imagine it's about $150 if, if he says that... Um, it would clear your credit. Clear his credit and his buddy's credit was 83 whatever it was. and Sure. You know, it could be $200 even. And uh, now going to town was a big deal then. Who knows how long it would take? I assume it would be like an all-day event. Right. And I think that this was something that didn't happen every week it didn't happen every month it may have been an annual it may have been a biannual um, as later as spider conway goes in there his sons are in no hurry to leave and it proves to be a fatal mistake you gotta wonder too if a lot of people back then didn't have scurvy because they did not have any vegetables or, or fruits or anything like that maybe apples rarely but um what about the personal hygiene i mean well, they, not, they, they had a river that's to true in, but uh you know no toothpaste no god but they didn't have any processed food, so they weren't facing all of that. 
See like the building there? C.K. LaHood and Son oh, mining yeah. and smelting? But they were all living on just meat, shooting you know, game and yeah. rabbits and elk, deer and bear and stuff like that, but very little in the way of... Um, Vegetables. Starches and vegetables and stuff. Maybe some wild carrot or something. High-calorie diet, but these guys worked hard. God, imagine the amount of work it would be just to provide sustenance for these people. So now here comes Josh LaHood coming to tell Preacher that his father wants to speak with him. And they say, no, no, he'll be fine. You don't need to go get Hull. Right, right. And Josh here comes across as very sleazy because every time he's always like, Megan nodding his head towards her, and she's not interested. No. In this scene here, uh, he does get down off of the the wagon here, and he goes in, and I just assumed that something awful would befall these two women as soon as he's out of their sight, you know? Like, you come to expect that sort of thing. It's it's a good it's a good misdirect. It's a, it's a very modern way of, of doing that. And then he, you know, of course, that would lead into the next sequence where he would, of course, have to chase after them or whatever. But, but um, it doesn't happen in this. They're they're no. left they're left untouched as he goes in to deal with. Now in this interior scene, I did I did notice they transfer the interior here. It's so dimly lit. Yes, that's very intentional because. It's very authentic. There is no lights other than lantern light, and the lantern and light, kerosene lamps, kerosene lamps doesn't. They don't offer any sort of glow. The firelight there is very, very, very dark in this scene. You can almost see zero background detail. Even in the 2K restoration that I have, very little shows up in here, and I think that's good. It's a good thing because it really puts you back into that time frame. It, it's very. They would not do that today, unless it was a like a film. It has like a film noir sort of look to it. Yeah. Now Lahood is uh, bringing him a drink, so we're you know whether it's brandy or or whiskey. But now here comes his bribery. Why not invite the devout and humble man to preach in town? This is a great scene. Uh, a scene that we talk about quite a few times. It has a big impact here. It it just it goes to preacher's character. That's right. Which is uncorruptible. You're not going to intimidate me by force, by using a big man like club. You're not going to bribe me with drink and the promise of money. No, he's and I think the reason for that is why he's so staunch in his convictions is that he's lived that life, right? You, you, can, you can infer that based on his past and his wounds and where he is now in life as an old grizzled man, he's lived that life, and he's, he's unyielding. In his beliefs at this point, whether he is a preacher or not, we don't know nope. if he's an actual preacher. But we do know that he is—he does have strong convictions of what he believes is morally right and wrong, and yes. he, he's willing to uphold that to whatever cost. Yeah, and this conversation between the two of them is really, really good. Uh, LaHood brings out a writ which he shakes and tries to yes. get him to read, and yes. he goes, "If it was worth the paper it was printed on, you wouldn't try to." bribe me and he goes well, i'm trying to avoid violence i come up short he goes would you buy these people's claims they go how about a hundred head how about a thousand then they laugh at him and he goes i'll go 125 stockburn and his deputies will cost you a lot more than that how would you know so there's the first reference to the backstory for this character sure sure yes, and here, yes. here he's shaking the writ in his face and then it closes with a close-up on clint eastwood as he does the old hairy eyeball which is a physical trait that he's well known for as in dirty hairy yes and then he goes uh What's it cost to have a clear conscience? Okay, thousand ahead, but they have twenty-four hours. 
So now the clock is speeding up, right, Rick? Again, you, again, they add this element of urgency, this ticking clock in their story, which is which is great. It is. It's, it, it, give, it it adds the suspense. Without that, you don't you don't plant that seed in the audience's mind that says, "Oh, geez, if you're really paying attention, if you're watching this film, you know this." Like, oh my God, they they only have a short amount of time to do this, and then this, of course, sets up uh, the second act of our film we're into the second act now yes about it, where they have to decide see, see that close-up look at the hairy eyeball there's the hairy eyeball he goes oh you're preacher you're trouble now eastwood really didn't appear in many films that he 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 appeared in a very specific style of film whether yes. it was like a, a cop or like a flawed character who gets redemption or justice, but not in the sense of like a Steven Seagal or or a Van Damme. He didn't go down that action hero route, uh, you know. No. Not as much as even Stallone. Stallone even stayed away from a lot of it, and he did. She tried to be more of an Eastwood, but he did get sucked into some of the commercial elements of it. But but Eastwood always tried to stay a bit more serious and dramatic, uh, except if he was doing like Any Which Way You Can or Every Which Way But Loose and things like that. But Which not, are both fun movies. Fun movies, but again, he plays the same character in every film, basically, right? Right, and like I mentioned it earlier in, in the overview, that's why I like the characters he plays more than the characters that John Wayne plays. Right now, here he's here he's giving La Hood the chance to prevent violence. If you buy him out, they'll go. And La Hood says, "Well, I'll buy him out, but they've got twenty four hours to go." So then it's still on his terms, right? Like La Hood is saying, "You're still doing this my way. Right. Still, still doing it my way, or else." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. See, now they're all laughing. I, I tell you what, I'll go up to one hundred twenty five. And he says, Stockburn and his deputies will cost you a lot more than that. Yeah, again, like we said before, he um, throw back to... How would you know? How would you know? How much is it worth to have a clear conscience? Okay, $1,000 a head then. Or a claim then. It's $1,000 a claim. So, there is no direct relation in the two scripts, but uh, Clint Eastwood previously starred in a similarly named segment of Rawhide. Uh, season 5, episode 22, called Incident of the Pale Rider. Nice. Nice. Didn't I know that. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> Rawhide also had uh, Pat Hingle in some of the mm-hmm. episodes, and Pat yeah. Hingle would go on to be Judge Parker in Eastwood's first theatrical release, Hang mm-hmm. 'em High. Yeah. So, and then uh, if we go to some of his other movies, which I'm sure we, we will, uh, Eastwood has a lot of similar cast in, in multiple movies. Now, Eastwood, uh, during the filming of Pale Rider, he sustained what he described as the worst injury he ever had on the side of a film, which was when the horse he was riding fell through the ice and, oh boy. and launched him forward, uh, dislocating his shoulder. Shoulder injuries are known to be horrific. So here we are, um, back in the encampment, and these men, a very, very long sequence coming up here. It's a, it's a, I think it's a throwback to a Leone style, where you just have this super long, drawn-out sequence, and they kind of go over the, the bullet points over and over and over again. Maybe yeah. Maybe he was filling time, I don't really know, but I feel like this sequence could have been trimmed by about three and a half minutes yeah so what they're doing is they're having their version of a town hall meeting they all meet together around the campfire they discuss their options and it's basically you got a thousand dollars to go and they say well what if you stuck a thousand dollars would you quit or would you stay so they choose to stay and that proves to be very 
uh, I don't want to, you know, it's not going to spoil anything. It'll pan out differently for Spider than it does for the others. Sure, it, right? sure. It's, it certainly will because this this meeting, when what they decide here sets a chain of events that will lead directly to the final confrontation of the film. And if these men had just taken the $1,000 each, which was nothing to sneeze at back then, I'm sure no. they could have lived comfortably on $1,000 for a couple of years, um, at least gotten started somewhere. And now Eastwood is telling them, he said he'd call in the marshal. We have nothing to fear from the law. This is no ordinary kind of marshal. He upholds whatever law pays best. Correct. So he's letting him know if you choose to stay, he's what's coming for you. And yeah. th- again, he's he's a no um, no sugarcoat kind of guy. This is what you have. He says it's your sweat that he's buying, right? If you refuse LaHood's offer, you're going to meet him. Right, right. And uh, they're they're gonna they're gonna run these points into the ground here. But every man. Every man has a say in this here. Everyone gets a voice. And think about it. I agree with you. This this segment is a little long. But if you were facing, you have 24 hours, someone's going to pay you money, or a special group of gunmen are going to come in, and uh, that's that. That is a life and death decision. Well, it's a very dramatic scene, and I think that um, this style of filmmaking really appears to appeals to a certain kind of viewer. It's right. it's it's a very immersive experience. It's westerns can be a hard pill to swallow for the casual viewer. It took me forty years to really get into them. It was something. It was a style of film that I avoided most of my life because I I thought of a western more of as more of a John Wayne, and I, I didn't I didn't see the the artistry and the artisanship and the sublime filmmaking and just a lot even some of the kitsch factor. In a lot of these westerns, and now as I'm as I'm older, my tastes are more refined. Um, I Some re- of it becomes I really more appealing. It. it becomes much more appealing. And what yeah. I do like about this particular sequence is you see the light flashing on and off all these people from the crackling campfire. I think that's really cool. Again, it's a very, it's a very immersive thing, right? You have the preacher from the background just being this sort of conscientious objector, right? He's listening. He's taking it all in, and he's going to support whatever they do he doesn't have a personal stake in this and when they when they ask him later you know what is your what is your stake in this and he he's he's completely neutral if he says if they decide well we're going to stay and fight he'll back you but if he's if you say i'm going to turn i'm going to leave for my own best then he'll do that too he he, he's not going to try to convince you preacher one way or the other what what you should do yeah he's not influencing their decision he says if you turn down his offer you're going to meet stockburn and his deputies but he's not afraid. He's not afraid of anything. He is a no. fearless guy. You know, like, you know, he. he this is this. Sorry, no. this is where they should have stopped this sequence. They already had the full conversation. Now it's coming back. Well, we're miners. That's what we do. What price do we put on our dignity? You already introduced the thousand dollars. You already introduced the threat of turning it down. The scene is long enough. But it's fair, long enough, right? A fair point that he says. Where's the line? That's right. But what want, price do we put on our dignity? Correct. Where is the line? And then that's something that I that I find myself asking all the time. You know, if, you know, where's the line with these decisions that we make, personal or professional or whatever? And here is a another very overly simplistic, good biblical reference. These tin panners are struggling with life, and they're looking for faith and comfort from the preacher. We all struggle with life in our own way. Whether you go to church to get answers sure. or find answers elsewhere. We all struggle with life. We all have big decisions to make. It's a relatable subject matter, common ground, right? Sure, exactly. And, and, and their point was like, I'm no coward, 
but I'm going to stand and fight and protect what I have, which I think is a, it's a fair point, And it's, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to be as easily swayed. They have a lot invested here. Like you said, they've all buried family members here. You know, they're trying to create their own little niche in the world. And I think their feeling was like, well, this has all been for nothing then, a little bit of money. There's got to be more than life than money. That's right. So now here we have um, the resolution of that scene was they are going to stay and fight. And Preacher walking off into the woods here, which is a kind of an unusual setting for a Western, a sort of sparse yeah. forest here. And he's confronted by Megan. And these who, are birch trees. I, I birch don't know. trees, yeah. yes. 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 Who will uh, profess her love interest yeah. for him? And there, the dog was killed in the, in the beginning raid of the film, very much like the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West, where the dog was killed. Was that Once Upon a Time in the West, or the dog, or is that Good, the Bad, the Ugly? Oh boy, I don't think it was Once Upon a Time in the West. Okay, it's Good, the Bad, the Ugly then. Where, or, or maybe no, maybe it was a fistful of dollars. They all kind of blend in together. Sure. But one of those films, a dog dies in the yeah. very beginning. And if, in fact, you know, not to get too far off topic, but I did watch a, a, um, an Italian crime film this morning at work as I was drawing my appointment, and I did see another crime film where, where a dog was killed, and I, I, I really dislike those moments. It's an it's a it's it's the low hanging fruit. It tug, it tugs on all of our heartstrings. The death of a pet is is tragic. We see, all we yeah. all feel that. You see it a lot in um, horror films. I've, I've never liked it. I don't like seeing dogs hurt. No. No. Now, now she's talking. See, she goes, there's nothing wrong with making love either. And he says, I think it's just best to practice loving before you think about the other. So he's he's trying to politely let her down that, that this is not for me. You're not for me. I'm not for you. This is not going to happen. What you're feeling is natural. See, Megan, most folks around kind of associate that with marriage so he's kind of telling her you need to wait for your married husband well i'll be 15 so she's desperate right well she she's i wouldn't say she's desperate i would say that it's the first man that she's met that she, that well he's got strong convictions right he's yes. he's a good figure he's strong he's he's virtuous he's righteous he's he he possesses all these qualities that no other man that she's seen has so far so of course it's, it's very normal and natural for her but someone has to look out for the interest of others who may not be fully aware of the choices that they're making right so that really shows a good per, a char- the character of a person see he just said 99 out of 100 men would love to take you up on that but you need to focus on the person you're going to spend your future with and his point was if you feel this strongly about me and you think that i'm this great then you need to trust me and what i'm telling you is accurate that yes please please just save yourself for someone who's more worthy of your time now in your limited experience you may believe that i hold all of the keys and answers to your life and i'm all of these sort of things but you know trust me if you care for me this much and you really hold me in that high regard believe me that i'm not what you think i am yes and of course she takes it as that he feels differently right that he right wants uh, her, her mom mother, or something her right yeah she's convinced and it goes back to this very sort of immature way of thinking that illustrates his point i would think that um she her her first initial reactions are emotional she's just reacting from the gut so she's saying i love you be with me and then he spurns her advances and she says oh you just love somebody else and sort of yeah she says it's my mama you love isn't yeah. it yeah and he says no that's 
it's really, please, just know this is not what's happening here. So yeah, your mom is a fine woman, and so are you. Of course, she she takes this as a bitter uh, rejectment. It's true. I don't care. You can have her. She's she's yelling, and I never want to see you again. So she storms off. I hope you die, and I hope you go to hell. Yeah. So there she goes. And this is the last time she actually physically uh, gets to, to see him in this movie. Uh, no. No, no. He he rescues her later on. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That That's right. But towards the end, she, she doesn't get her, her goodbye. <clears throat> Correct. Correct. And um, I think that was the only time we see the, the preacher potentially wounded. But it was an emotional wound as yes. opposed to a physical wound. But even then, it didn't really crack his grim facade because his characters, he told her the truth. People aren't always receptive to the truth. And if he's a preacher, which we don't know if he is or isn't, this is exactly the type of thing that he studied at the seminary for, right? To guide people. Correct. Correct. <clears throat> so he's in this scene, he's riding towards the encampment, just going to chat with these boys here. Which was very brief. Tell your father they turned him down. That's it. One sentence. That's it. Now mm -hmm. that's the weasel, the guy with the... Yes, the head wrap. He was in The Running Man with Schwarzenegger. He was, Who was he in that? Um, he was the computer guy that's trying to crack the code, and he gets electrocuted by the uh, oh, bounty hunter yeah, named Dynamo, yes. the guy with the electric mohawk, remember, sure, the, the yeah. car? He was, one of the, he was one of the few guys. Dude, it's been so long since I've seen that movie, The Running Man. In fact, I just picked up a copy of that, and I'd love to, I'd love to get involved in that at some point. Well, talking about genre classics, action will come up. I think we can make a strong argument for viewing a Schwarzenegger movie. But we're not going to get off topic on which one, but at some point, Schwarzenegger could very likely be on here. Yeah, you really want to, what's interesting to me, like I said before, is comparing and contrasting films like this. So I would like to, you know, you watch this film, which is very straightforward, and maybe watch something a little bit more off the cuff, a little, or a little more artful, a little bit more, uh, I don't know, kitschy or silly, you know, uh, not as serious, not as straight-laced. And, and again, we'll, we will select which genres, and, and you and I will have our conversation will kind of thin the herd and we'll come to our selection and yeah anything we choose we're, we're going to have a good time with it so yeah. now yeah josh has just told this guy to send the telegraph for stockburn their offer was turned down the ball's rolling and guess what they're going to be on their way folks what's funny about that telegraph too is the technology then they had these telegraph wires that ran all across country right and you had to be on the other side of that thing Yep, to hear to, that tick, to, tick, 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 Yeah, so the Morse code. If you didn't get it, you're taking a leak in the water trough outside or something, and you <laughs> missed that. Sorry, you know. I guess you could send it back if you, I guess maybe if you were waiting for it all day. Like, hey, uh, where's that uh, telegraph? Oh, I sent it 20 minutes ago. Which I'm sure is exactly what they would do. Like, if they didn't get a response, send it again. Yeah, Send right. it again, because right. people were just as impatient then as we are now. Right. So we have... Um, the preacher is cleared Michael out. Michael Moriarty came in to look at the bunk here, and the preacher is gone. Now, he went where... He's, he, he's preparing to pull up stakes if it all goes south. Is that right? Yes, and I, I think it certainly implies in the preacher's mind that he expected them to, to say no. That's why he's already kind of got his stuff all rolled up. He's all cleaned out of there. He's ready to address the oncoming threat of the hood. He's not going to wait until they're upon him. He's prepared. Boy, those rolls look good, don't they? <laughs> they certainly do. You you and I both, um, we may very well be hungry, but uh, that is a typical country fare. I mean, my mother always has made a lot of homemade rolls and biscuits, whether we have pot roast or, or, or meatloaf. But, yeah, I, I definitely grew up sitting at the family kitchen table and 
Lots of times a Western like this was either before or after the supper because I got introduced to these at a very young age with my father. That's why, you know, in the in the 80s, it probably didn't have a lot of little boys watching uh, Clint Eastwood films. It was probably whatever, Ghostbusters or whoever they were interested in. But I was uh, introduced to this stuff at a, at a young age, and uh, I certainly thank my dad for that. I think of him a lot, and I actually had a uh, flip a coin, so to speak. Did I get the cover of Pale Rider or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly for my Clint Eastwood tattoo, and I decided to go with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That's how much I love these movies. I'll take Eastwood with me to my grave someday. <laughs> sure. It's a very it's a very iconic thing, right? I think so. Um, you know, and I had the opposite experience growing up. Well, my dad was really into um, Westerns, but he watched, like, Stagecoach and Paint Your Wagon and things like that that were just very stuffy and just had zero appeal Oh yeah. To for a kid like me, you know, I grew up in the '80s. I was the youngest of five, and you know, I was much, very much into pop culture, like, like uh, the Ghostbusters and all stuff like that, and horror films. So westerns just flew right over my head. And it's only now in life, after my dad's recently passed away, that I wish I could. We had a better relationship that I could have sat down with him and gone over to his house on a Sunday afternoon, like you said, and watched this movie with him and there was only a couple of moments that we shared later on in his life after he became sick where we got to sit and watch things together and mostly mostly it was just trash tv he was pretty interested in like sci-fi shows and and um even like charmed and buffy it was kind of weird but you know but my dad loved sci-fi stuff too because he saw creature from the black lagoon as a little boy so he always loved creature films like alien and predator or even the crapper creature but he always we'd either look for something like that like a monster movie like he liked leviathan and, and deep star oh, yeah. six yeah my dad did too he took me to see he took me to see they live he took me to see the fly Two. he took me to see robocop 2 with my brother just and then of course my brother um introduced me to a lot of the films like the warriors and best oh, of the yeah. best and stuff like that so we have um sarah blaming um Michael Moriarty's character for the preacher's departure. For the preacher's departure, and here the preacher is coming in to the library and or the, the, r- bank. the bank and giving him a key to the safe deposit safe box. deposit box, which holds his revolvers. His now this revolvers. is this is symbolically huge. The collar comes off, the gun belt comes on. So, the path of peace, pacifism. We've exhausted all options there. Now he is going to become a, a man of action, a man of divine justice, right? Exactly. Divine intervention. Exactly. So he, and it, that that makes you think what his course of action was, was when he had entered the town that day in his first appearance. At some point he stopped by that bank, took out a safety deposit box, yep. and, and put his weapons away. And very careful. It makes you think back to the encounters that he's had already with the other characters, especially Club. You know, he yeah. didn't he didn't have his pistol on him. No, and he didn't have his pistol on him when when Josh reached for his own pistol he on didn't. his belt. Exactly. So, again, what a really cool moment for the audience to think, oh man, look how look how fearless he was, or or look how close he skated to the edge of danger and in that you know that situation. It, it also reinforces, in my opinion, that he is a man of principle he'll get his guns if the moment calls for the guns he doesn't go to the gun first sure but he has it if he needs it and that's that's exactly what that uh, moment signified now here is this did they ha- has he dammed the river yet yes a few minutes ago uh what we were talking about kind of childhood 
movie Roots, we missed the on-scene depiction of a, an explosion and there's a big dust cloud. So the creek is dammed. So they no longer have access to running water. But they make a choice to dry pan for a few days because the preacher's gone. They're all kind of frantic. Where's the preacher? And the hood's, well, he said he'd, excuse me, Hall goes, well, he said to do as he'd do if, you know, he were here. And Spider picks up on it. He's like, you've got sand, Barrett, but you can't lie. We're spit. So Right, right. So Spider knows that the preacher's gone, but uh, Hull Barrett convinced the others. Yeah. Now see how close I am. See see how... You got sand, Barrett. Yep. Yeah. But you can't lie worth a damn. Oh. So how many times have you seen this movie? Quite a bit. Honestly, if I had to try to guess over the course of the years, I've probably watched this movie 30 or 40 times. Cool. Yeah. It's just... I'm weird that way. I have it's a not weird. It's I have weird a handful of movies that, for whatever reason, they whether it's nostalgia, whether it's just what I view as quality versus inequality. There's certain movies that I can come back to, and I never get tired of them. I watch this movie probably once or twice a year faithfully, and I just don't seem to get tired of it. Now here we have Stockburn and his deputies riding uphill. Look at that big shot, Rick, of that vast mountain. And they're all identical, right? They all have kind of yeah. the same uniform. They wear the same type of duster. And uh, one of the deputies is, of course, the great Billy Drago, whom we love. Billy Drago? Yes. Uh, from a lot of the action films, though. Tell me what Billy Drago's been in. Oh, my goodness. Um, I also remember him from The Untouchables. He played uh, Oh yeah. one of Al Capone's henchmen, who De Niro played Al Capone in The Untouchables. He was also in Death Wish 2. With uh, no, no, excuse me, Delta Force Two. Delta with, Force with, Two with Chuck Norris. He he plays the main drug baron in there. Um, oh boy! Even later in life, he was in um, The Hills Have Eyes. He played one of the mutants in The Hills Have Eyes, the like the two thousands series. Oh, okay, the two thousands. That yeah. was a great movie. I think so. It was gritty. It was it was raw, but uh, Drago is a good a good character actor. He's a good villain. He plays small roles, not typically a a leading role, but he's He's much like uh, Henry Silva, who we've mentioned more than once. And to your point about um, watching these films, oh, here we go. Look at this. This yeah. is where this guy finds a a football-sized gold nugget. It's got to be worth fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Oh, easily, easy. I mean, uh, Barrett was ecstatic to find something that was the size of a chicken nugget. Right? That yeah. would clear his debt. Yes. This thing. Spider is a wealthy man now. So La Jolla, his his plan of damming the creek has completely backfired in the sense of the wa- now the water has run dry. It's made it significantly easier for these men to find a, a piece of gold this size. And which I guess if you look at it in retrospect, if he is such a bright villain, he understands what's going on. Don't you think he would have well, like, realized that? I think this is just one of those intangibles that you you just. You just don't know. It's just dumb luck that they happen to find this massive nugget just under the surface because this is the area that they've been to time and time again over the years. What makes a person look for the treasure two feet over there versus two feet over here? There's, it's just randomness. I think he knew that they depended upon the water for how they mine. So sure, sure. his motivation is certainly there. But this is one of the things that you just couldn't foresee happening. No, just not could at all. not foresee happening this. 
Now, this guy, Spider, is a very uh, tragic character. He's sort of a, he is a brainless barn owl. Let's just say that, you know. Yes. They called him a brainless barn owl, and he certainly is, his character. The shop owner referred to him as that son of a bitch, so he definitely has a little bit of a perhaps unruly reputation when he goes to town, which we're going to see shortly because he gets intoxicated. Now, um, looking at the our screen here with the DVD cover, I was reminded of, of the poster that I found that I shared with you this weekend. That's incredible. And that's that's from a, a, a newspaper from back in the day, right? Uh, after my dad passed away, I, I was tasked with going through his apartment and sort of cleaning it all out. And when you have to go through a process like that with your siblings or by yourself, it's a very sort of emotionally draining, gut-wrenching experience. But um, I did come away with a lot of cool keepsakes that were not uh, any value other than emotional value. Sentiment. Yeah. Sentiment. And one of them was this amazing rolled-up newspaper ad from Pale Rider from 1985, and it was huge. I mean, it's probably the size of that giant board over there. It's absolutely massive. That's wonderful. It That's was absolutely so, wonderful. It was so cool, and I'm, I'm really afraid to mount it because you're like, well, you got to mount that. And I, I thought, you know, if I put that on the wall with that newsprint, it's going to fade immediately as soon as the, the light hits it because it's been rolled up in my dad's closet since 1985 for 30-some-odd years, right? I think what you do is you get a large floating frame for it mm-hmm. so it's just glass on, on on both sides yeah and whether you keep it in your closet or whether you set it off in the corner that is not lit very well right give it the um preservation that it deserves because he chose to hang on to it for all those years not only that but it is completely unscathed there's not a dent there's not a wrinkle or a crack or a tear in that thing it was just rolled up in his stuff with a receipt wrapped around it, sort of taped with paper tape. And I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. And on this, on the margin of the paper, it said, whenever the film was released, which is July, June or July of 1985, and then the back of the paper had a big, very dramatic uh, ad for Pale Rider. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful piece. And I really like that story because that links both of our fathers who never met never from the same area right. to the same actor the same subject matter the same time and place that's just a cool connection it just goes yeah. to show eastwood's fan base and an appeal sure to men's of that age that demographic my dad was born in 39 so he's six years older than my father okay. my father was uh, born in 45 okay so, yeah so they're from the same era yep and um tough guys working guys salt of the earth kind of guys salt of the earth no nonsense guys yeah um, my dad was a carpenter and uh he built houses before working at gm and he was very much someone who if he would have interacted with five people a year that would have been just fine with him i think sure. he, he didn't like most people he <laughs> he he had a kind of an abrasive 60 grid personality it was if we're going to do something it's my way and it's not up for discussion um but he was very kind he, w- he was very caring um he definitely you know held a grudge um didn't have a lot of friends but uh just like a clock man you he was there he was reliable he provided a very good home for my mother and me that's amazing uh, my dad was very much the same way in the sense of sort of a no-nonsense kind of a guy, but a softy at heart. And it's no wonder uh, you describing your dad it sounds like you're describing Clint Eastwood. You know what <laughs> I mean? You know? My dad loved Eastwood. and I, There's a reason for that. Yeah, maybe he saw 
his own personality or his own lifestyle in some of these characters. Sure. We never really had that much of an in-depth conversation, but uh, yeah, he loved these movies. Now, to get back on track here, now LaHood is explaining the mining operation to yes. Megan, yes. how it goes from a series of bigger pipes to smaller pipes, then it washes down, travels through the sluice. But he says, you didn't come out here to get a look at that, did you? Because I want to get a good look at you. And the reason why Megan is out here is because she's feeling very disenfranchised after her sort of confrontation with Preacher and her spurned advances and her feeling just sort of displaced from her home and just taking it upon herself to go and see the world. And the She only, feels lost. She feels lost. And the only other place that she can think of going is to explore the nearest community, which unfortunately is full of rapists and yes. horrible, horrible criminals. So he says, I want to get a good look at you too. And that's exactly what he tries to do. He tries to force himself upon Megan with a circle of onlookers. And you would think that at least what I thought that these guys were going to come over and be like, hey, get the hell off her, you piece of crap. But the only guy that comes to her rescue is Club. Yes. And he says, and did the last person that you would think, you'd think that guy would be sort of kidnapping people like this. But he comes over and he says, get the hell away from her. Yeah. And. I think it goes to show that even though Club is a hulking brute of a man, he has some type of connection to the preacher who bested him instantly and could have finished him off if he was a cruel, uh, you know, murderous man, but he helped him back on his horse. So that's, I think that's all it took for Club to say, hey, this guy hurt me, but I'm here because of that, right? So I'm not going to let him get shot in the back, so to speak. So that's that's a really interesting point. I never really thought about like what his turn was, but I suppose it was that act of kindness that probably no one has shown him in his life, right? Sort of like that. Sort of uh, you know, I'm guessing a little bit about club, but um, it implies that he is just a tool. Every toolbox needs a hammer, and I think they definitely view club as a hammer. In yes. Fact, that's where he's introduced, yeah. right? Yeah. Take this hammer and break the rock. So they, right. he was an asset. They, I don't think they ever probably treated him too kind. Now here's the preacher atop the horse. He, he fired. He's stopping Josh, who is, of course, pissed. He doesn't I, like it. Again, uh, uh, his superhero moment from the preacher appearing out of nowhere, like sort of like Batman again. Like a <clears throat> phantom. Like a phantom, like a ghost. And um, coming to the aid here, shooting from the hip. With an iron sights 19th century gun. And I have some old uh, revolvers. You know, they're new, but they're fashioned in the old style. They are hard to hit stuff, folks. But blam, he shoots. Shot the rifle or pistol right out of Chris Penn's hand and took Chris Penn to the ground here. He's going to try to reach for his pistol and boom, again, right through the hand. That would be extremely painful because the vast majority of the bones in the human body are located in the hands and feet series of small small bones so that bullet wound would just crush and fragment all those that would be horrific wound and i think back then too it was inoperable they can yank it was a clean shot so there's no bullet in the hand just destroyed the hand sure maybe it affected his work for the rest of his life this character and here we come with preacher swooping down picking up megan onto the what kind of horse was that appaloosa appaloosa horse Riding off here, and we don't see Club again. Oh, no, actually, we do. Oh, we do? I Well, wait a minute. I don't... I was at the last appearance of Club in the film? Because he does that in the final... No, he comes in one more time. Okay. See, and here we which is kind of embarrassing. I've watched these movies so many times. Well, Sometimes okay. I unintentionally combine two scenes into one. That's fine. Yes. Um, now, here's Spider Conway, who was drunk in the town with a bottle, behaving like an ass. 
like a like a what do they call them? a barn owl a barn owl a brainless barn owl yeah so it, it's a very silly moment and uh, it's playing on a stereotype his last name is con con spider conway spider yeah 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 so yeah. it's implying that he's, he's irish a, conway <laughs> yes it's implying that he's irish and that's a, a stereotype of the drunk irish now yeah these are those the, is that the first shot of the rangers nope um earlier in the movie remember it showed him coming on scene as they come up the hill stockburn is leading them all single file that's where i said one of them is billy drago oh they're all in the same right. type of uniform that's right okay okay i i, I couldn't remember if yeah. if it, you know but yeah they're all yeah they're wearing the dusters here but now la hood is telling stockburn this preacher whooped four of my men single-handedly what did he look like big guy weird eyes and then stockburn has that moment of clarity i know who you're talking about but that man's dead right so it, yeah that's as much link as we get to their backstory so it implies that stockburn i think shot the preacher that's where there's the 100 percent. yeah stockburn had to shoot him because he said i killed that man right he did because later in the movie you he has this big disbelief it can't possibly be him and that's that's the that's the turn you know that, that that's that moment that aha moment the twist yep that we're all sort of used to in these films and this guy is a this guy is a good villain he he kind of has a face much like lee van cleef it's long it's angular he has a prominent chin uh cheekbones kind of a larger nose so he plays a good a good villain and he has a really deep voice here too which we can't hear or, or broadcast but take my word for it if you're watching it at home looking like uh james garner maybe in maverick looking a yep. bit, looking a bit like a sam elliott type character it's yes like certainly sam elliott nowadays yes at the time sam elliott was still probably in his in his mid 40s or early 40s at this point not not too old yet still had some black in his mustache yeah at this point but um so oh, look at this sounds like your daddy's running out of time better go get him hell no we only get the town once a year okay so, so yeah again again illustrating the point they don't get they don't get to town that often so here we go spider is still this scene has gone on for super long they're, yes. they're really drawn out here and it's 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 invoking the wrath of the marshal's men yes even though spider's got a pistol and a knife on his hip he's blind stinking drunk in the middle of the day waving this giant eighty thousand dollar chunk of gold around to come out say hey la hood come out come out and what what i find really interesting about this scene is that these men don't seem to be interested in this gold whatsoever no they don't no, care no, no. about it as no, much, no, as no, much no. money as that is one of those guys just come and take it and ride off and what are they going to do no 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 it's yeah. not it's not about that because all the characters in this film are characters of high principle right because like eastwood said stockburn and his deputies will cost you a lot more than that so these guys are paid and they're paid well to uphold whatever type of law pays the most they are hired killers that's exactly what they are exactly they are a team of hired killers and they don't do anything until stockburn gives them the okay okay boys say hello and later in the movie he says fan out so they wait for his commands when they when he says jump it's how high he More does or exactly he looks up does look a lot like lee van cleef yes he really does kind of like the sunken cheeks like i said the angular face uh van cleef was referred to as the hawk because they said his nose kind of had a oh yeah a beak resemblance <clears throat> and uh um lee van cleef and clint eastwood became friends i think on the set of rawhide could could very some, well some, be something like that and um he had some personal he had some troubles in his personal life but um eastwood really liked him and brought him back so i think it was at his recommendation that he came aboard uh, the good the bad the ugly yeah 
and he was also in for a few dollars more the second of or the I'm sorry fistful of dollars no, no fistful was, of dollars is the first one for a few dollars more is the right, second one right, and that's right. where lee van cleef plays uh, okay. colonel mortimer um, right right and I, I think you can make the argument that for a few dollars more is just as good as the good the bad and the ugly excellent film excellent film so and uh Here. oh she he's they, these these men are telling uh spider to dance right which is uh you know that that's a that that is a trope. That's an old trope. You see, dance for me, monkey, and you shoot the shoot the ground and make their make them dance around. And of course, you see that in uh, Goodfellas as well, or is uh, it oh, yeah. a scene like that in Goodfellas? With yeah, it spider? is. Yes, because uh, Joe Pesci is is referencing old Western which, movies, which is a, yeah, which is funny because they call him Spider. His character <laughs> is named Spider, and that that's a film. nice connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is probably unintentional. It is unintentional, but clearly, what they're doing is they're toying with this man he is helpless it almost makes you think if he turned to run that they would just shoot him in the back oh 100 percent. that's kind of what i was waiting for this entire time see he holds up their hand they stop shooting and they blow the bottle out of his hand and it just this shows here and the nugget i think this character here of the marshal and the preacher are sort of two sides of the same coin right so you have a man who's almost just as dangerous and deadly as the preacher but he's on the opposite side of the law even yes. though he is supposed to uphold the law he's the flip side of the same coin more or less he is he he's is. a man of principle but it's whatever principle pays the most right right so yes exactly so he he is corruptible because he is, he is a hired gun under the ooh right the, in the head a very brutal scene this is the only really gra well not the only graphic but it is a graphic scene the first graphic and gory scene and very shocking and striking for a western i think and it's shocking and striking for violent death for any film of this era because you really didn't see that amount of grit or gore just and, a you and, know and in a in a, 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 a mainstream film and you know another thing that sets this movie apart too we're well on our way into this movie and that is the first on-screen death this correct. western has been on a long time and no one has been shot to death correct so we have kind of the the raid in the beginning but the violence all comes out in uh, in act three more or less um and this the budget for this movie was uh 6.9 million and its gross in u.s and canada was 41 million four hundred and ten thousand five hundred and sixty eight making it the highest-grossing Western at the box office made and released during the 80s. Yes. So, I'm sorry, I said earlier that it was 16 by 9, but it's not. It's it's 2.391, which is the aspect ratio and common in modern cinema, which is anamorphic widescreen. So now the preacher is returning Megan to the camp. Yes, uh, he's bringing her back. Unsca- well, almost unscathed. Yeah, she's a definitely probably emotionally uh, battered, and, but physically she was not um, violated. So here's explaining what's happening here. And you know what? This movie, I think, um, is almost as good with the sound off because you're cutting out this actress's horrible, horribly <laughs> stilted performance and just focusing on... The visual now if you don't know the story well um you'd, you'd struggle a little bit getting through it sure and of course sarah notices though now the preacher has on his gun belt so Correct. she's drawing her own conclusions of what's going to come what's coming next yeah yes and a lot of these times like i like how eastwood is in the door frame there right like he's always backlit he is but you know and you have mentioned that a couple times before but everything is so dark 
and dramatic. It almost falls a little flat, but, you know, he, I think some some of the more iconic shots and are when he's on his horse yes. and he walks by a, a situation and he gives that turn and he looks and he sees it and you know mm. you know what's going on. So now, of course, Spider. Uh, yep, so the town folk know that uh, La Hood means business. Spider is, in fact, dead. And his boys are they're tra- you know, traumatized. The bullets kept hitting him forever. Now, this is just a movie, but uh, getting shot in the forehead like that, the entire back of his head would have been blown mostly apart. That's just the nature of exit wounds. So it would have been much more grisly than that, even though we do have a nice entry wound displayed on his forehead. Brutal. Yes. So the night you warned us about Stockburn sounds like you knew him. So now the town people too. Spider asked you that. They're drawing their own conclusions. They're linking the preacher's past to Stockburn. Yes. And one of them even says, you, you are going to town, ain't you? The guy kind of with the big nose here. And then uh, Barrett says, how could you ask him like that? That guy there with the big mustache. Meaning that uh, he's going to go home. He's going to go into town and take care of all this yes. for him sort of thing. Yeah, so they're kind of pleading, you know, you're going to save us, aren't you? And he says, look, he made a mistake. We've got to stick together, people, because you went off on your own. Only standing by together will you stand against the hoods of the world. Exactly, because they had, basically, they gave, like, back to this story, Lahood had given the town uh, 24 hours to come to an agreement. And when they said no, that means the marshal is going to come and clear out the town. Really, Lahood did not have to dam that river. He could have just, just swooped in there and did all that. That was, like, sort of his last chance to say, hey, okay, you just get out while you still can. Showing he he's not a compassionate man, but he did have that moment. This is this is your last ditched effort. This right. is your last chance. And who yep. knows? It, it may have been the the words of the preacher as he was leaving, saying, "How much does it cost to buy a clear conscience?" Yes. Right. Now here it kind of implies too, it, although it's not shown. It, it kind of implies that uh, Sarah and the preacher have a have a love interest. Do they really? Yes, it does. Is she is she fixated on him? Or she is. He's not. Because she she does kiss him, and she's like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life not knowing or, or something like that. Um, I may have missed the scene. Yeah, the so. last time I watched this. So this is the first time I'm actually paying attention to this scene. Well, that's okay. I don't know what happened? I don't know how I missed this. Because you're human. Maybe, well, maybe the cut of my maybe the cut of my copy didn't. Ha- I don't know. I, maybe I was eating. Who knows? I was probably eating. So I, typically, when I watch these movies, I have to sort of squeeze them in during my drawing time and my uh, sure family time and all that. And the only time I really get to sit and watch a full movie uninterrupted is during our podcasts. And even yeah. even then, it's not typically not really interrupted or uninterrupted. It's very interrupted. But uh, conversation is just as much as the point as the mu- movie itself. Sure. We're here. We're we're really trying to focus on what we're watching she's making her best case yes she's making her best case for dating but um you know see she said i swore i would never love again after her husband left then you rode into our lives so she's she's in she's in love with the preacher too i couldn't help what i felt and i think you know god i wish i could control my feelings (laughs) these these people are all sort of like these women are, are projecting their feelings uh, onto him without even knowing him as a person. They were sort of standing behind his actions yes. without knowing him as he was as a person. And uh, sometimes being noble and, and righteous is enough for people. 
I don't know. It's definitely certainly a good quality to have. She says, I need a man who would never leave me. Can you understand that? And you would leave, wouldn't you? He says, yes. Yep, one day you'd leave again. Yep. So this is a... Um, she's pouring it all out there, but she's, she's asking him all these questions, but she's also answering her own questions. So she's, she's reconciling this relationship in her mind. She's sort of like, her character is sort of like going through the motions with this. She's, she's, she's running through their relationship or their, their imagined relationship and what, how it would play out. Like, I have all these feelings for you. I, I really admire you as a human being, as a virtuous human, but I need, this is what I need. Yes. And you cannot provide that for me, can you? And he says, you're absolutely right. So, And she, so. she kisses him because she said, this is so I don't wake up for the rest of my life wondering. So, yeah. But he seems to have zero interest in that. And, of course, he's a terrible actress, so who would? <laughs> right. And uh, that, uh, that bun and that... Uh, horrific dress she's wearing doesn't make her case any more appealing yeah well, that's about as silly as we're going to get on that and ripping on miss snodgrass but <laughs> a fine woman preacher says a fine woman and that's right she yeah she she if it, i don't know I, I do i do like casting unknowns the casting of the unknowns i i think however it just makes it more believable when you cast an unknown in these and and eastwood could have had his pick of probably anyone I would yeah. imagine at this point he could have had some big names, but were there actors that was the Western that popular? I think that um, I remember reading that Heaven's Gate, that that epic. Have you heard of that Heaven's Gate movie? It was like one no. of the biggest commercial and critical failures. It went way over budget and it cost so much money and like Cleopatra decades before, sort of like that. Yeah, yeah. A widely panned movie. Um, the studio probably really wasn't interested in backing something this. like this. Yeah, they're they're looking for give me Ghostbusters, you know, give me Police Academy, but don't give me this. So maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't have a lot of luck casting big so names. Now, now I view that scene as that they're sleeping together because she opened the door to leave, then she shut the door, and then the light goes off in the cabin, and now you see him in the morning. I think that's exactly what happens. Yes. That's exactly what happens. They they did spend the night together, even though she's sort of reconciling their relationship and their future. Um, he's just like, okay, well, you know what? If this is my last night on earth, I don't know. He, I, 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 I agree with you. Yes. I agree with you. And I'm not going to comment or make a silly joke that I would make on the other show, but it goes to show, too, that even a man of faith is still a man. Yes, yeah, yeah. Especially, right? That's a fair statement, sure, don't you think? Sure, sure, sure. So now here's Hull Barrett. He's got his big buffalo, the forty-five seventy. Even with that rifle, you wouldn't stand much of a chance. That's for me to decide, isn't it? So you know what they're going to do. They're going to go blow they're up gonna, the mining facility. They're going to go attack the mining facility. You're going to hit them where it hurts. That's right. They blew up. They dammed our creek. Well, we're going to stop their uh, sluice machine and then conveyor belt, all these hydraulic monitors. Which is a very cool. Um, Hall, Hall Barrett is a is a good character, right? Because he's sort of, you know, he was sort of just fixated on this life and what they're doing. Got very caught up in what's going on here. But, you know, by virtue of his relationship with the with the preacher, he's sort of becoming a righteous man himself and and saying, hey, you know, I'm gonna. This is a, this is very important for him. He's not just standing on the sidelines anymore. He's actively involved in in fighting for his future. Good character. He's he's a good he's a good wingman for sure. Yes. Very virtuous as well. Guy ba you can trust. Batman needs his Robin. So he to does. Speak. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know. So here they are throwing awesomely throwing sticks of dynamite, exploding 
here. Just, oh, so very cool. Oh, yeah. Super I mean, cool. I mean, there's a lot of big shots here where they're blowing up, like, the conveyor belts, the water, the, the huts. They're doing to the miners what they did to the tin pans at the beginning of the movie. Here, see, here he comes. See, he, he oh, saves he him from okay. getting shot in the back. Oh, right, right. Okay. See, I thought that happened when he was trying to assault Sarah, but that's the last time we see him. That's see, the nod of the hat. And cool. He, yeah. Very he kind cool. of does like a primal grunt of, you bet, I saved your back. Very cool. Very cool. Yep, and here comes the stick of dynamite into the cabin. Saying, okay, I'm not going to blow you guys up, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to disable your operation here. That's right. I'm not here to kill you guys, but I'm definitely taking a piss in the punch bowl, more or less. <laughs> right? Definitely. Don't don't you think? That was a cool shot. Yeah, blowing up these sort of ramshackle houses. So I guess. And I like how it showed that pine tree was um, teetering. So very cool. Yeah. 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 This lob and sticks of dynamite down into no. these shafts here. Yeah, and when when you watch this at home, and hopefully you are, I love the sound of dynamite going off yeah. in these old westerns. Boom, boom. Sort of long wick, the long, the long wick too. They're not they're not short wick, so you have plenty of time if you're if you're on the receiving end of that explosion to turn tail and run. Sure. The only time we ever see the preacher slip up is when he drops a stick of dynamite and Barrett goes to get it. Which, oops, there it is. Oh, there it goes. Which wasn't a slip at all. He wants Barrett to get the dynamite so he can shoe off barrett's horse he doesn't need him to go into the town to get killed facing stockburn and the deputies ah okay very clever there a little turn that i missed a little detail that i missed the last time see ah see he shooed off his horse he's like where are you going Mm Hmm. so okay you can help me with this but uh stay here and you're a good man barrett you take care of sarah and the girl because i think he knows that in the gunfight he may not necessarily be able to keep barrett safe no but he does he does make he does make it to the town though in the end right he, he, yes he, he does. does he does make it to the town and he does help the preacher out in the end but he sort of um spares him that initial uh fury of the gunfight. he sort of takes the edge off before barrett would barrett be comes in. over his head against stockburn and the deputies 100 percent. and um he he needs to do the preacher needs to do his best Batman. He needs to sort of hide in the shadow, even though it takes place in the middle of the day. He's sort of like he's using corners, through. he's using yeah. doorways, he's using shadows, and and obviously it's going to come up here pretty soon, and we're, we'll keep uh, analyzing it. But I like that it's different. It's not just the one versus one on a vast open landscape, which it ends that way with him versus Stockburn. But lots of westerns, that's all it is. Is they just they face each other. It's a quick of the draw. This is different. He has to pick them off one by one. He uses the terrain, and I like that. Yeah, he does. And it's it's not like a modern western or a modern action film where you have these these close. I here we have the 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 preacher coming in, the last shot of him approaching the town, beautiful mountain background, the sun is shining in the town. It's very pleasant. The However, cafe on the left, the hood on the right. Yes, the storm is coming. It is coming. And uh, that's the preacher all right. Very cool. It is. You ever see him before? I can't see his face from here. But he knows. He knows, he knows. immediately. He, he knows. Be, he, he's probably doubting at this point. Is this is this the guy? Uh, he doesn't want to believe it, but uh, sort of here's, here's I the I think mark. it confirmed it. Yes. And I like this scene, too, because LaHood's men says, well, I reckon we don't need to wait for all those deputies. So they think yeah. <laughs> incorrectly that they're going to get rid of the preacher themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is surprising because he beat them all up earlier with a stick, a big piece of hickory. 
So now they're going to choose to take him on with guns. And that guy's eating an apple again. Too. That guy's always eating in this. It's like his thing, right? Yeah, he likes his apples. I which, guess. You know, I guess if I was in here, I'd be chewing on beef jerky, but that's probably maybe, why he's lean and I'm not. So <laughs> maybe not. Well, I mean, that's a back then. It was. I mean, it's still a lean thing, you know. Yeah. Back then, probably not as much. And it definitely implies that this story is taking place. Well, let's just say over the course of a week or so, because that guy still has his head wrapped from getting beat up with the uh, axe handle earlier. Okay, and here we here we have um, preacher coming into the cafe saying, "Hey, you guys better." Uh... Yeah, you guys uh, might want to take a stroll. So he knows what's coming. Yeah, he and he. This is almost like a fisherman setting a lure for the fish. He sits with his back to the door, and they just come right on in. The menu there it says the sir- T-bone is a dollar, sirloin's a dollar. Oh, let's go eat there, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> right? Seems a little pricey for being back then. You'd think it'd be like 10 cents, especially since in the 50s, everything was like 10, 15 cents for a cup of coffee, right? Well, yeah. Dollar seems, dollar seems like a lot. But I, I always have enjoyed those shots when people are moving and the camera moves with them. Mm-hmm. I've always liked that. It works nice in Westerns, too, because then the landscape just kind of keeps going and keeps showing, and it works. In those shots, they either they're either on um, a study cam on a track, or they have a guy with a rig on and he's walking with them. But it's or, or it could be you know those crane, probably a very professional big crane that they're yeah. on and just sort of moving these cranes and following the motion. But uh, they all have to hit their mark. So there's all marks in the ground where those guys are at. So that way, that actor can move. See, they're see they're they're moving very deliberately, but but the camera is set up in one fixed location, and it's only going to get a certain range of motion, maybe sure. like 180 degrees. So so you're only he can move there and move back, but he's not going anywhere else. See, now they did, they come in and they said exactly what I said. He's even sitting with his back to the door. Well, we don't need that marshal, do we? Now, Hood, it appears we you won't have to bother. Well, <laughs> just right. wait and see, folks. And I'm just curious, what are they shooting at? They must think he's hiding under a table or something. I, yeah, like it just seems very. Because he comes around the corner, you threw. Like, hey guys, how's it going? And uh, now, even here, a couple of them choose to skedaddle. And he's, eh, we made he's fine ch- with it, yeah. yeah. But he still pulls out his revolver, but he doesn't shoot right away. It's when they turn to face him that he puts them all down. See? He pauses. Okay, so here's a bit of trivia I have for you. In the scene where the preacher kills LaHood's own men, there's a man who survives. He's a short man in a bowler hat. And when the preacher asks, are you through, right before killing the men, he slowly walks out with a funny walk, bobbing up and down, and then runs. That same type of character, perhaps even the same actor, can be seen at the end of Unforgiven, where Clint Eastwood's character, William Money, kills the sheriff and his deputies and then says any men don't want to get killed but are clear out of the back door yes yes a a man also in a bowler hat quietly walks the exact same walk bobbing up and down goes out and survives so that's nice there's some trivia for you that's good and i i honestly i remember the people uh leaving but i i I can't say that i recall the hat oh Uh here it comes he's inviting us to join him what a cool shot here you have the sort of shot where they're shooting up at the sky Yes, and, and Eastwood is uh, reloading a Remington brand revolver, which was different than the more commonly Colt. But I like that they're showing how it uh, loads and stuff much differently. Now, my dad had a CO2 gun that he gave me, a CO2 pistol that was pretty much the exact same thing. And you unscrewed the top and you put the compressed air cartridge in there and then the chamber slid out and you can put pellets. And, and it, only held like, it only held like six, of course, uh, six BBs or six pellets. It was very impractical. But it was cool looking. Sure. It's a very 80s thing to have. 
But um, again, Stockburn says, well, let's go out and join him. Let's go say hello. So they just follow his command. Then he tells them to fan out, and that's exactly what they do. So in that kind of pistol like that, would you have those individual chambers where they were movable? Because he, he, like... Well, well, that's a cylinder. A cylinder? A, a cylinder, yeah. So I think in the interest of saving time, he has a few extra cylinders on his belt. That's because, my, that was my question, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise what you'd have to do is you would have to load the rounds individually into the cylinder. I see. Which takes more time. So in his interest, he just chooses to swap out the cylinders. And then reload them. Yeah, he Pre- cuts, preload them later yeah, on. Yeah, so he cuts his reloading time down considerably. So the the first the last time they saw him, a preacher was standing in the middle of the town, and these guys all walk out to greet him for their epic showdown, and when they're only greeted by his hat, like yes. in the middle of the open, dusty street, right? Oh. Uh, f- frozen, dusty street at this point. Oh, yeah. And so there, he's sending his men to fan out, to look around for these find for the preacher. Yeah. yeah. And again, you can just assume that everywhere they go, that they do something like this and they're not on the receiving end of defeat. They no. don't question him. They just, yep, this is how we do things. This is how we get it done. Because these guys are definitely, whether they're ex-soldiers or, or, or whomever, they're all skilled with the gun. They've just never came across somebody who's their better. Now, you'll see um, examples of, of this scene in almost any superhero film, especially any Batman movie. You're going to see the villain and his henchmen sending out the troops to to capture the Batman. That's why yeah. I that's why I've been equating this film to like to Batman because sure. it does steal a borrow a lot of elements heavily from old westerns where you have it's always one man against the odds and that's a theme that you're going to see throughout this unless it's like a unless it's like a young guns maybe or something where there's a core group like the wild like a, bunch the yeah. wild bunch yeah see I like how this is shot too like the close up of the guy's boots and spurs on the walkway. It's implying that the preacher could be anywhere, right? Is he looking through those windows? That, that's exactly right. It, Is he around the corner? That's exactly right. You, when you have that shot of shooting the here he, villain sorry. through the window, that's so here he's exactly opening right. the door, and look at this. Boom! Right. Po- point of view shot. That's point blank range, folks, right to the upper chest. He is done. You know who's missing from this movie? Like a Randall Tex Cobb. Oh, he would have been a good henchman. He he always he reminds me of this 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 cat right here, right? With yep. the beard and the flat nose, sort of. Yes. I love Randall. Yes. He was a professional boxer who took a horrific beating at the hands of uh, Larry Holmes. No kidding. That was Howard Cassell's last commentary. He's like, in the name of decency, why isn't this stopped? I've got oh, okay. no more business in viewing this. This isn't boxing. This is an execution. And then it was. It was the last time he ever called a boxing match. Uh, uh, because of that brutal brutality? Or yeah. Be- oh, wow. Yeah, he, it was like uh, 82, 83, because Holmes was champ from 78 to 85. And uh, Randall Tex Cobb, man. Yes. Gotta love him. Yes. So now, this has to be a weird feeling for him. One of their own is dead. They, I don't think they've encountered this before. Again, no sense of urgency with these with these guys here. Billy Drago here, yep. uh, leading the last guy coming up, and you see that you see in the back left corner the the sheriff or the 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 marshal. He stays stationary. Watching. He stays stationary until the final encounter. Here comes the crates, and now he is going to get a two for one here. Bam, 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 bam. Yep, one guy took one to the chest, one took two. So he's he definitely has good shot groupings. I, I've said it before, the C zone, which. In law enforcement terms, when you qualify, those are shots that would stop the threat. So, and I, th- I think the fact that they're not panicking and, and, and running shows their discipline, shows that they know not to put themselves at risk. 
But I think emotionally inside, they're, they're not used to, this has to be bothering them. We don't lose. We get this done. He, they just seem more annoyed yes. than anything. Like, oh, man, you know, like. Like, I would think now that their number guy? has been reduced by half, panic would be set in. Now, Roger Ebert mistakenly said that the preacher lays inside the water trough. No, no, no. <laughs> Watch his hand. It doesn't come from the water. It comes from outside the trough. He's laying on his back on the ground. So he's not laying inside the water. Yeah, why would he? Boom. Oh, right under the chin. Oh, yeah, he's behind it. Oh, yes. I mean, well, I guess I could... Well, I don't know. It could be an empty water trough. It's oh, no, a little, we, it's a, we could see the water in there. We, oh, you could? Oh, I yeah. Didn't, I didn't see it. Yeah, so that was one of the things that Ebert criticized about the movie, although mm. he did like this movie. He did say that that was an improbable shot, but he's not in the water. He's using the water. There was, I, I, there I do, was an outhouse on the other side. So it, Right, right. Yeah. I do understand where he's coming from. It does sort of look, it does sort of look that way, and I think, I think you could... If you didn't see the water, which I didn't see the water, so it, it is reasonable to assume that he didn't see it either. Sure. Well, and he's only human. You can assume. Right. Yeah, you can you can make that argument. But, so so we have a, a pretty cool scene here with the horse sort of dragging the dude through the street. Pretty awesome little. Yeah, which he's going to get drugged to death. A bad way to go. Yeah, yeah. Which is unique, you know, because he's just picking them off by one by one with his with his bullets, but with the thing with the rope. Here, so here we have Preacher in their final showdown with the Marshal, picking up his hat from the middle of the street. And this showdown is very reminiscent from Take the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Take Once Upon a Time in the West. The hero faces the villain face-to-face, middle of the street, and he even tucks the poncho behind his gun belt, much like Eastwood always does. Eastwood, definitely, uh, obviously a huge fan of the genre, loves making them, loves starring in them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have repeated this moment again and again and again and again in all of his films. And I think he understood how important this good versus evil um, Yeah, You have to depict it on screen. You have to. And some directors like Leone... They build up to it, then they get over it very, very quickly. Some like Peck and Paw, they they delay the action. It's slow motion. It's it's, it's violent. Yeah. I think Eastwood is somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle. He's. I would completely agree with you. Not not as stylish as his later films, um, like A Million Dollar Baby or or whatever. But certainly, and not as emotionally like sort of gut wrenching. But he is just getting right up close in Stockburn's grill. See, look at that almost snarl on his face. Oh, he sees him. There's the panic. You. Now he knows for sure because he's faced him. He might be older. These guys might be 30 years older. You don't know. Bam, bam. Here we go. Not yet. Yep. Not yet. So, again, it's almost like he gave Stockburn a chance there. Like he if did. You, if you don't stop drawing. But he did. But he gave him the same configuration of shots almost. That he himself took. So you, you could one could make the assumption that this is exactly what happened in their last con- confrontation, otherwise, uh, but except it was the other way around, right? That it was Preacher being shot. Yes. And then he, he kills um, Stockburn just like Conway was killed. Uh, shot up in the torso and then the coup de grace to the head. Now here, Coy LaHood is going to bust out the window and here comes Barrett. Which is very apropos, right? Yes. Because he he's the, Barrett and his men are the ones suffering from LaHood's uh, uh, tyranny in so this he, town. So, so the fact he that he shoots him out. Is a little bit of poetic justice. Very, very much so. Poetic justice yep. has been served. <clears throat> and justice, here we have justice, has been served for everyone in this town. Yes. Um, now we can start over. We can start a new new government, new whatever, which there really is no government here. It's just 
the settlers. And the, you know, again, themselves. again, the biblical. He brings death to the evil, and he brings salvation and hope to the innocent. True. I really like the end credits here where he rolls he goes off into the into the wild and the credits continue rolling as as he's making his way out of town long walk barrett yeah (laughs) (laughs) he does say that very funny yep and preacher knows that he he saved his life and yes but also he he's also comfortable with the decision that he made because he knew that he still believes that barrett would have been killed and I think so. I think Barrett would have got killed by Stockburn's deputies. And here the story is wrapped up nice and neatly. All the elements have come together. All the questions have been answered. Uh, well, the, the intentional questions have been answered. There's no loose ends, except for maybe what happened to Club. Yes. And uh, Chris Penn. Yes, I, I think they survived. They I probably think, survived, yeah. I think all of the Hood's henchmen who were not in town lived. The mining camp has been ruined, so they're going to have to probably try to rebuild now here comes megan in a last ditch effort to to see the preacher one more time where is he he's gone megan see she's you know like you said that first feeling of of love even the the stock the store owners are telling her she's gone you can't ride those horses anymore he's gone she wants to see him one more time correct 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 but she, but they address her properly. Child, she is a child. She's only fourteen. I know, I know. So she's calling out for the preacher, heartbroken, calling the, into the canyon. Look at that beautiful shot of that canyon. The beginning of the movie, she's calling, asking God for a prayer. At the end of the movie, she's calling out for the preacher. It's come mm. full circle. Come full circle. It resolves itself, right? She hollers, "I love you." This that's the only that this is the only well one of the only scenes I did not like at all. I didn't I didn't like the end. I just I thought this part was very clunky. I, I didn't think it needed this. It just seems very like almost a comeback, Shane, come back sort of thing, right? Yeah, she's pleading, but uh, he keeps moving on. It's a little it's a little ham fisted. To me, just this, just that little last sequence. I, I remember cringing slightly when I watched it. Now that just could be from it being sort of a dated film, and, and I think maybe more modern choices would have had that go a little differently. But, uh, but nothing that's certainly going to turn me off. Yeah, and if there's a brief moment where you, you kind of say, "Oh, they ended it that way," uh, that's not bad because you don't certainly feel that way about the film as a whole. No, you certainly don't. Not at all. So. Yeah, here we go. We're, now we're coming in the last final moments of the film here with Barrett taking his stepdaughter and a future yes. stepdaughter now back home to their encampment to start their lives now. Yep. Leaving the leaving the guy right in the middle of the street dead. Yeah, well, the town undertaker, he's got to have work too. Yeah. Now, see, I like this shot with him galloping with the mountains like that. Very I like cool. that. Very cool. I, I really do like that, which implies that he's fading off until he's needed again, right? Good filmmaking because everything is centrifugally focused at the, being in the center, right? So you have you have the camera hitting its mark right in the middle, and you have the preacher riding into the sunset or the or the wilderness, as it were, um, with this sort of um, transition this uh, to to the to the wilderness just to see what he's up against, the elements that he's going into, the mists of Avalon, as it were, right? He's returning from whence he came. So. Well, there we go. That was the Pale Rider. That was the first episode of our show. And um, being the good, the bad, and the podcast, this is definitely in the good range. I, I think say. so. 
and I and I think that uh, we will never intentionally select the bad. Oh, I will. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm really interested in watching some of these Italian crime films. I have all these box sets and all these films I'd like to explore, but um, they might be for bonus episodes um, you know, some extra episodes for certain platforms. I don't really like doing that, but I also don't want to inundate our audience with, you know, just these things. It could just be like if, if we grab a, a box set and go through it and we might watch a couple of scenes. Well, we might not watch the entire film, but we might pick and choose. Sure. You and know I, what I mean? I think something we could do, too, is if we make a selection, we could also have a few other options on hand, something to the extent of if you like this, you may also be interested in, you could show the... Exactly. A few other offerings. Exactly. So if you like Pale Rider, you would definitely be interested in High Plains Drifter for sure because they go hand in hand. They are yes. maybe unintentionally linked in some way. And I also uh, would suggest you look up the Man With No Name trilogy because that's the role that made Eastwood famous. They came back to it in the 70s with High Plains Drifter and, of course, in 1985's Pale Rider. So check but, out those films. But tonally very different. So yes. If, but I, so, I, so to counter that point, I would suggest instead of those three which are very different. I would suggest watching Unforgiven or 310 to Yuma or, you know, maybe not, not, not so much even The Quick and the Dead, but maybe those two. Sure. You know, well, totally. Well, the, the point is, is there's a lot of really good um, Western titles and not all of them have Eastwood, obviously. But if you're interested in more Eastwood, you've made some good choices there. Sure. I, I would also uh, say check out The Quick and the Dead and uh, maybe the Wild Bunch, too. If you're comfortable for a, a long sit, I would recommend the Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch. All right, there we go. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. Any last thoughts? Well, this is our debut episode, and this is kind of the theme of, of what we're going to go for. We're going to make a selection. We're going to stay on task. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have some diverse options coming up, that's for sure. All righty. Thanks for joining us. Take care.